My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, my co-host Chris Van Zant and I have a conversation with a man who dedicated 27 years of service to the U.S. Army, more than 21 of those in special operations, including 12 years with the Special Missions Unit as a Tier 1 operator. Our guest spent time with such units as the 3rd Infantry, 101st Airborne, 5th Special Forces, 10th Special Forces, Special Operations Command as a Congressional Liaison, and even as an Army Congressional Fellow, where he advised Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson from the great state of Texas on military budgets, construction programs, and other military issues. He served in 11 combat rotations between Iraq and Afghanistan. He's the recipient of the Silver Star and six Bronze Stars. But our guest is not just a warrior, though. He's also a renaissance man who holds a bachelor's degree in liberal arts and a master's degree in legislative affairs. He's the founder of Tier One Trapper and is still instructing and consulting as an independent contractor. I'm so honored to introduce not only this week's guest, but my great co-host, former team member, Jesse Betcher. What's going on, man? Hey, DJ. Thanks for uh, inviting me to the show. Been looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here, and and we have a lot to talk about. Um, you had kind of a storied career, and you had stuff that happened in your career that didn't happen to you. Were the first enlisted guy to do the fellowship, like we talked about, and so I want to get into it now. I know your brother was in the Navy, but did you have a military background? Did you have a military family that kind of drove you towards that? Uh, not not at all. And my brother, he was about ten years older than me, so he left right after high school, you know, I'm like an eight year old kid. Uh, so I didn't know anything about the military and, and I've told that to other people and they're like, what do, what do you mean? You didn't know anything. I mean, I knew nothing. I didn't know what an MOS meant was. I didn't know the difference between an officer and enlisted. I knew, uh, I knew nothing other than what I had seen in the few TV shows and movies. So pretty naive in that aspect. Well, you started off your career a little rocky, I'd say. You had moved to Hawaii after you graduated high school to be with your brother who was in the Navy. Uh, you hated it there. Uh, I know uh, you spent very little time at the beach. I want to know what you did spend your time doing there because I lived there for four years. So if you didn't go to the beach, I'd like to know what you did with your time. Yeah, so I got a job uh, working at some, uh, it was like a woodworking place, working for some Vietnamese guy who just, I think the only English he knew was sand more, like keep sanding the, the wood. He made uh, really nice furniture out of coa wood. And then, you didn't learn uh, a martial art, did you? Because I saw that movie before. <laughs> uh, no, unfortunately not. And then I got a job at uh, Thrifty Car Rental right there at the uh, right near the airport. And I did that uh, for a few months. Like I said, I, I wasn't there that long, probably a total of 
you know, nine or 10 months I spent in Hawaii. And, and that was one of the reasons for me joining the military was just, that was a way to, to get off of that, that miserable Island. Uh, so when you join, I've also heard you say that you would ask your brother about joining the military, but you didn't think he would help you, uh, and you would never join the Navy. Yeah. I mean, the Navy was, was never an option, even though my brother absolutely loved it. He was a submariner, a machinist made on, uh, some, you know, nuclear submarines. And he, he just loved every aspect of the Navy and still does. Uh, but yeah, that's not what I, that's not what I had in mind. And, uh, you know, a lot of people say that they join the military because, you know, they want to serve their country or they're being, you know, patriotic. The truth is, uh, well, at least back in 2015, I did some research on this and through the Air Force and Army recruiters and uh, patriotism was not even in the top 10 reasons of why people walk into the recruiter's office. I mean, it's it's everything from, you know, college money or uh, what it boils down to is people are usually moving away from something. They're getting away from the big city or away from the small town, away from the farm, away from their parents, or they're uh, moving towards something like an adventure or travel or something more exciting. So the reasons people join usually fall in those categories. They're looking for something or getting away from something. Now, maybe right after, uh, you know, 9-11, just like right after the Pearl Harbor bombing, there were people who, yeah, they went to the recruiter to, no kidding, serve their country. Uh, in fact, I know a guy who, he just retired. As a matter of fact, he joined right after 9-11. He did 20 years in the Army to the day, and then he just retired this past uh, October. <clears throat> you know, all 20 years at war. But that's not why people join the military uh, for the most part. So if that's what you've been told, uh, like people like to think that and they might tell their friends and family that, but that's not the real reason that they walked into that recruiter's office. Now that is why they stay. That's why they reenlist is because then they, they get that, you know, I don't know if it's an indoctrination, uh, but they become more patriotic and they see the value of serving their country and it gives them some sort of purpose. So, um, you know, that's why people probably stay in for, you know, that second, third, fourth reenlistment, in my opinion, and based on my research. Well, so tell me then, what what was your reason? I know you wanted to get off the island, but your first kind of go around was with the National Guard there in Hawaii. Yeah, uh, well, with the reserve. So, yeah, here's the deal. So I was like 18 and I had lived a pretty active lifestyle all through high school. I mean, I was, a you know, a, my dad was a logger. So I spent all summer logging and, and rodeoing and I was, a you know, into sports. So I was a pretty fit kid. And then I get to Hawaii and I'm like, you know, not doing a lot of physical activity, probably drinking more beer than than the 18 uh, year old kid should. <clears throat> so I'm like, you know, I'm getting I'm getting a little fat here. Need to get in shape, need to do something. Uh, so I'm like, hey, I know I'll, I'll join the military, but I don't want to go in full time. In fact, I didn't even want to sign up for a reserve or national guard contract. So I went in the recruiter. I said, Hey, Hey bro, can I just go to, uh, to basic training? That's all I want. I just want to go to basic training, do some pushups, get in shape. And then that's it. He's like, well, no, you have to sign up for, you know, at least, uh, a reserve or national guard contract, you know, one weekend a month. 
and that's when he showed me some videos. He's like, well, if you want to, if you want the toughest, you know, thing, that's going to be 11 Bravo, what we call it. That's the infantry. And I'm like, yeah, that looks cool. Showed me some, you know, videos on the old VHS tape. And uh, so I signed up to be an 11 Bravo through the uh, delayed entry program. I signed up on October 6th of 1988, then didn't leave for basic training until January 12th of 1989. So a few months there. So you're enlisting around the end of the Cold War. So it's a completely different army. I don't know necessarily than it is today, but don't you think it was a completely different army when you joined it? I mean, yeah, you know, you can say that. I mean, we had the, back then you had to polish your boots and and uh, the big enemy was Russia, you know, well, the Soviet Union. In fact, when I first came in there in 1988, Ronald Reagan was, was still president. So, yeah, it was, uh, you know, a lot changed after uh, the wall came down and the Soviet Union collapsed and, you know, uh, peace spread all over the world. I'm like, well, you know, what the heck's going on here? But there were some little glimmers of, you know, there's always going to be hot spots around. Uh, Panama happened. Um I remember watching that go down, you know, I was sitting in a, my small town uh, pizza place here and I was watching on the news, the invasion of Panama in December of 1989. And that's when I'm like, man, I'm, I'm missing out. I'm sitting here and, you know, by that time I was back in Wisconsin. And, um, so I was starting to think that I was probably going to go uh, active duty at some point. And then once Saddam invaded uh, Kuwait in August of 1990, that was the deciding factor for me. I'm like, I, I have to go get in on some of this, you know, because it was talking about it was going to be a big, uh, you know, life ch or world changing event, you know, 30,000 U.S. Cas casualties in the first couple of weeks. And I'm like, man, that's I need to be part of history. You know, this is like my generation's D-Day. So that's when I went back to the recruiter and I said, hey, sign me up for uh, for active duty. So you didn't want the summer camp program anymore. You wanted to go like full time and, and get at it. Now, I thought it was interesting, though, when you talk about your career, because even with that National Guard stuff, when you went active duty, there was only a couple different places open. You had tried to move to a couple locations, but they said like Europe was open. And I think they said a couple other things. And when they moved you, yeah. they moved you to third mech which you were 11 B yeah. a Walker. Yeah. So you did not really spend any time as an 11 B over there. Um, that, that is correct. Uh, I remember showing up there. I got to the replacement attachment in Würzburg, Germany, me and two other 11 Bravos. In fact, one of the guys I still keep in, uh, keep in contact with his days. His name is Hodge. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the NCOIC of the replacement attachment, he's like, 11 Bravo. He's like, what, what the hell are you guys doing here? And I'm like, I, I have no idea. You know, I was at private uh, E2. And so they, they found a job for us, you know, where we were just doing menial jobs, not really infantry type skills uh, for my, my two years, for a full two years I spent in Germany, had a pretty, uh, lived a pretty good life over there. Hey, so Jesse, <laughs> I'm just curious. And first of all, I'm, I'm just happy to be here. Uh, I, I appreciate DJ bringing us both on. I enjoy any time I get to spend with Jesse. He's a friend. He was a mentor and a teammate of mine. Um, so this is cool. But I'm curious. So you went to basic training. What were your thoughts during and after basic training? Were you physically challenged or did you laugh about it? Uh, were you disappointed? What were your thoughts? 
Uh, so I, I actually, I, I hated it. I mean, I just hated, um, so, cause I, like I said, I grew up with not a lot of oversight, um, probably from what would be described uh, today as a, uh, a dysfunctional family. Um, but as a result, I had a lot of freedom, you know, all through, uh, at a very young age, you know, I was out taking off in my own car at 14 and 15 years old and, and just doing things that would be unheard of today. So I had this sense of, uh, a lot of freedom. So when I got the basic training, they, they took all of that from me. They took, uh, every bit of freedom that I had, you know, told me, you know, where to be at all times and when I could shower and when I could sleep and not, and when I could eat. Uh, so I didn't like that aspect of just that lack of, uh, freedom. But as far as physically, there is nothing, uh, I mean, nothing at all that I thought of that was, uh, you know, that challenging at all. But yeah, it probably got me in a little bit better shape than I was in. My question to that is, and it's kind of tacks on to Chris's. So when you get there, is it, is it everything? Because you know, reading through your career and stuff, was it everything you thought it was going to be? Because I have a feeling it was like a huge disappointment when you got there. Where to basic training? Yeah, to basic training. I mean, like I said, I, I just didn't enjoy it. I would just count down the days till it was over. Um, I didn't think it was, you know, as cool as a lot of, a lot of guys thought. Because I remember being there with people from, you know, like New York City, and they had never fired a, a rifle before. And I had been... Uh, no kidding, hunting uh, by myself with a 22 at eight, nine, 10 years old, running the trap line at, at 10, 11 years old. Um, so shooting a gun was uh, something I did quite often. Um, so that wasn't, uh, you know, a big highlight for me like it was for some of the other guys. You know, uh, we got to shoot a, a lot, the light anti-tank weapon. Uh, so I had not done that before. That was pretty cool. But I mean, it was, I would say it was a little bit of a underwhelming experience for me overall. Well, you know, I, I thought it was interesting because I came from a small town when I went to basic training and you see so many different people and it opens up your eyes to just kind of the world in general. I had a guy that didn't wear shoes very often before he came to basic training. He looked like a baby deer on ice when you put boots on him and just, you would ask him and he was like, I, I just don't wear shoes. I don't, you know, we get one pair of shoes for the year. And if we wear it out, we're out of shoes. So to get like two pairs of boots and stuff, he was in, you know, heaven. And when I got there, that's what was interesting to me about it was, was you see all these different people. And like you said, there's so many different reasons why they're there. And when you see some of the reasons why they're there, it just blows your mind. Yeah. All and right. What's that? I was just like, okay, okay, that's enough about basic training. We can, uh, okay. we can move okay. on to <laughs> So, so when, yeah. when you're done with that, uh, you move on and you're active duty. We've already talked about kind of Germany. So let's move on to the 101st where you're actually going to start actually doing your job. Yeah, loved it. Loved the When I was, you know, in the actual infantry, uh, uh, I think, and again, I was a little bit probably spoiled there because I got put, uh, sent to the scout platoon, which even when I was in my reserve unit, after I left Hawaii, I went to reserve unit in Minnesota and there I was in a scout platoon. So I got used to that living, uh, a little bit. Um, I wouldn't say 
maybe better, but it was, you know, you were kind of the elite, you know, kind of guys of that, of an infantry battalion, you know, because you got to go out in small man elements and do the, uh, the reconnaissance work, uh, being the eyes and ears for the battalion. So when the rest of the, you know, battalion is wearing Kevlar helmets and, you know, all of this gear and, you know, we would be out in just our patrol caps and, and, uh, kind of, uh, out, out in the woods for a long, longer periods of time. So I liked that. And so when I got to the 101st, I was then sent to the scout platoon as well. And I liked it also because the, the standards were a little, a little bit higher, you know, you had to have like, a, I think a 275 PT score or something to be accepted in there. And, uh, you know, the, the haircut standards were, uh, more stringent. We had to get a fresh haircut like every week. And, but at the same time, we had our own scout, like PT shirts where the whole rest of the battalion is wearing their standard army gray shirt. We had our black shirt that said, you know, Ranger scouts or whatever on it. So I kind of like that, you know, being a little bit, I don't know if the word is more elite, but a little bit more separate, separated and exclusive from the, the rest of the, the regular Joes in the battalion. So, yeah, I, I really liked the 101st and uh, enjoyed my time there. Do you think that was because, cause like you talked about with basic training, do you think that was because you had more freedom and, and even though there were higher standards, you were kind of left to your own. Yeah. Um, you know, I never really put, uh, that together, but that could be, uh, one of the reasons why I did enjoy it so much. Maybe if I had been in a regular line company or a B or C company, uh, out there doing company size movements and patrols, I, might not have enjoyed that as much, but being in a small uh, section like that, we did have more freedom and autonomy to do uh, things. And I was able to make, even as a, as a E4, um, I was able to make decisions that, you know, maybe an E6 in the line company would. And then, uh, and then I went to Ranger school. And then shortly after that, as an E5, I was uh, a squad leader in the scout platoon. So, yeah, I, I definitely had more uh, freedom. Yeah, that's, I never thought of that. Good point, Jesse. You think that you think that that taste of that being a little different, working a little harder to be a part of an elite portion of a battalion. Do you think that like lit a fire under you and made you want to pursue things to the next level, moving on? And and that's one. And then two, did you were you absorbing more things and understanding more about the army and some of the other opportunities that were out there at that point? Uh, actually that happened when I was in Germany, even though I wasn't out living in the field and stuff like that, I had a lot of exposure to, uh, you know, different aspects of the army. I took a lot of, uh, this is back in the day when we had correspondence courses and I did a lot of, re I mean, I'd sit in the barracks and I would, I would no kidding read, uh, field manuals and just learn about, um, different pieces of equipment and different jobs and stuff like that. And when I was a, a private um, E3, a, a private first class, I got a briefing from the uh, Special Forces guys over there in Germany. So that's when I decided that I wanted to to take that path eventually. Um, but I didn't get a chance to before I left Germany. So I'm like, well, when I get to the 101st, because I already had orders for that, I said, once I get to the 101st, then I'll probably put in for my uh, Special Forces uh, assessment and selection packet. And so that was my plan. In fact, I told them in the scout platoon, I'm like, hey, probably won't be here long. I'm going to uh, going to be a Green Beret. And, <laughs> and they probably uh, probably laughed at me. 
my squad leader is a guy named uh, Ben Jones, who later went on to be the uh, 18th Airborne Corps CSM. So uh, I can imagine his reaction when I said that. But shortly after I got to the 101st, we did a six-month deployment to the Sinai. Um, and then, you know, I went to a few other schools here and there. So it took me, uh, it took me about two years before I finally was able to get a slot for the Special Forces Assessment and Selection. And when you did, you wanted to go 18 Delta. That's what you wanted to be, a Special Forces medic. And you actually went, made it through selection in 95, uh, but it didn't quite work out the way you had kind of arranged it to be, I guess. Yeah, it was, uh, it was set to work out that way because, yeah, I wanted to be a, a, a medic. I just had a... a a desire to learn that additional skill. And I thought it would, you know, help me later in life if I wanted to, you know, go be a, a physician assistant or, or, uh, you know, maybe even a doctor later on. So I did have an interest in that and I wasn't like squeamish or anything around, you know, blood. I don't think I'd have any problem, you know, cutting somebody open if I had to. Uh, and I wanted to, I wanted to learn Russian and I wanted to, uh, go to 10th special forces group over in Germany that was my plan. So when I went to selection uh, and you get to request, you know, you, you have a preference of what your MOS is. And I put 18 Delta. And after selection, they told me that, yeah, OK, you're you're going to be an 18 Delta. You meet the whatever requirements, uh, you know, your IQ is not uh, super low. So uh, we'll, we'll let you try out for that. But that's right in the same time in 1995 uh, when they moved the 18 Delta Special Forces course from Fort Sam Houston, Texas to Fort Bragg. So uh, they're like, well, it's going to be at least a year, probably a year and a half before you can go to the to the Q course, the qualification course. They said, or you can go to the 18 Charlie course in a few months. Um, so that's what I did with the because they also incentivize it by saying, well, once you're an 18 Charlie, then later on you can reclassify and become an 18 Delta if you want to, which uh, I never did. After you get it, you get to group, but this is where the story kind of gets strange to me. You get to special forces, you get to fifth group, but you're not happy with the pinnacle. Uh, so yeah, to put it mildly, I don't know if pinnacle is, is the right word. Uh, I would say maybe a plateau would be better, more accurate. Uh, yeah, I was totally disenchanted with the whole SF. Uh, and I'm not going to sit here and say a lot of bad things about SF, but at the same time, I don't have a lot of good things to say about him either. Um, in, in hindsight, I realize I may have just went to maybe not the best team. You know, it was kind of uh, just a bunch of like, older kind of overweight guys who um, were kind of set in their ways. And they had this mentality that they, they'd already, they know, they knew it all. In fact, one guy already, he actually said those words to me, you know, he's like, I'm a green beret. There's nothing you can teach me, you know, that I don't already know. And I'm like, what, who's like, who says that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm in my fifties now and there's still a lot of things that I, that I have to learn, you know, you can teach me things. I mean, my kids, my 10 and 12 year old kids teach me things. So for a grown man to make a statement that 
there's nothing you can teach me. I know it all. I'm like, this isn't the kind of people that I want to be around. And, uh, and they just kind of, you know, talk down to me like I'm the new guy and, uh, you know, what do I know? But then I realized that I actually had probably more, you know, tactical experience than most of those guys on the team with all my time in the, in the 101st out patrolling um, because these guys were, the majority of them were, not that there's anything wrong with it, but they came from like support uh, type backgrounds. You know, they weren't combat arms. You know, they were, uh, you know, a helicopter crew chief or a x-ray technician or a truck driver or whatever, which is fine. But then they went to be uh, Green Berets. They went through the, you know, six month Q course and now they they think that they've been granted all of this tactical knowledge and uh, that just wasn't the case. So, yeah, I was really disenchanted with the whole uh, SF lifestyle, did a couple deployments with the guys. And I realized that, you know, I'm not um, maybe I'm not the best SF guy. You know, I mean, they have a mission to work, you know, by, with and through the host nation people. Uh, you know, they're force multipliers where they can go into whatever village and and grab a, a couple hundred guys and they can train them on these skills and then have those couple hundred guys do their their bidding for them, you know, like a, a guerrilla force. And uh, I don't know, it just wasn't it wasn't for me. I would rather go and do the uh, do the ambush myself instead of training up a bunch of uh, savages to do it, you know. Do you think, Jesse, that some of that was timing? I mean, what year What year was this when you got to fifth group? Uh, 90, 95. Uh, I was actually there for a couple months. I did on-the-job training while I was waiting for my Q course date. And uh, so by the time I finished Q course in language school, it was 96. And then I went back to the same battalion there in, uh, in fifth group. Yeah. No, I mean, timing-wise, you know, that was an, that was an interesting stretch of time in the service because you had Panama 89 then you had kind of a blank where there was a few people that did a few things so it was peacetime army for lack of a better term um do you think it would have been different if it had been years later and those guys had been at war for a number of years um probably i mean so this was a few years after desert desert storm which was their big you know their big deal i mean it was fifth group and that's their ao was the desert so uh you know they they did a lot of stuff there. They did some pretty good stuff. But, yeah, I hear what you're saying because when I did finally go back to uh, the Special Forces unit in uh, 2014, after they had been at war for, you know, 10 or 12 years, there was probably a, a higher caliber of guys. But at the same time, they weren't doing – their SF mission. There was a reason that special forces was created and it wasn't to kick in doors and shoot people in the face. Uh, they are the premier unconventional warfare unit probably in, in the world. And that's why they were created in 1952. And they got away from that during the, the global war on terrorism. You know, guys joined the army and they went in the special forces to, you know, to just shoot bad guys and to kick doors. And, uh, so when I got to uh, 1st Battalion, 10th Special Forces Group in 2014, I said, hey, we're not we're pulling out of Afghanistan. We're not going to do that. Our, we're going to focus on Eastern Europe and, uh, you know, the reason why we exist, unconventional warfare. 
I said, anybody can kick indoors. 82nd Airborne's kicking indoors, but almost nobody in the military can do unconventional warfare except you guys. So that's what we started focusing on. They weren't real happy about it, but uh, that's that was our job. You bring up a good point there. When you talk about guys that join the Army just to do that, to go to special forces, to kick indoors, shoot bad guys, you're big, and I've heard you say that there's steps to get where you're going, and you don't like when people maybe skip some of those steps. And you've said it on numerous occasions, not only about the military, but uh, a soccer mom who decides that she wants to be a congressman or a senator and uh, wins that election after not knowing anything about what she's doing. So let's talk a little bit about that, about people coming in and skipping over that program that was there, because if I understand it wasn't there for a while, then it came back during the global war on terror. And so what are your thoughts on it and what kind of soldier do you get from that? Um, so yeah, you're, you're talking about the 18 x-ray program and, uh, I am not, I'm not a fan, uh, to put it mildly in, in any form. I don't like the idea of coming straight off the street and going through a, you know, a a pretty short pipeline and then getting a green beret. And now you're, uh, you know, doing that job because you have, you have to get experience. Um, and you get that from starting out as a, as a private and a specialist and a, and a sergeant, you know, doing uh, tactical things. It doesn't have to be infantry, but I think it should be in a, a combat arms MOS. And for, I'm sorry if there's people who uh, are maybe not military, I'll try not to use too many acronyms, but MOS is your military occupational specialty. That's what your job is in the uh, army. I think the Marine Corps uses MOS also uh, as an acronym. So I think that you need, it takes years to get that type of experience. And, uh, you you know, it's funny, uh, back maybe in 2012, I went up to West Point and I taught a class on some uh, special operations stuff. Just went up there for for one day and and gave a a class to some of the guys. And afterwards, this cadet came up to me and he was basically asking me, He's like, hey, like he wanted to know some secret of how he could get um, this knowledge and this experience, you know. And I, I was, I looked at him really like confused. I said, are you, are you trying to, you're you trying to ask me how I can uh, share or give my experience to you through like osmosis? I said, let me give you an example. It takes exactly six years. Uh, to grow a captain in the army infantry with six years of experience. You can't just automatically uh, grant that to somebody. They have to actually live it. So for somebody to come in off the street who was working at McDonald's, goes to basic training, airborne, special forces assessment selection, the Q course, language school, SEER school, and now he doesn't have that experience. He hasn't lived out in a patrol base. He hasn't laid on an ambush line in, in the rain. He hasn't uh, had the low crawl for, you know, being late for formation and doing elevated pushups. He hasn't, he hasn't had that experience. And you can only get that by actually living that for a number of years. Well, can I play devil's advocate for a minute? <clears throat> And the, the question that I have is if they do all that, they, like you said, they, they're working at McDonald's, they're doing whatever. 
they come in, they go to basic, airborne, uh, the, the special forces school, SEER school. They pass everything. Is there something to say about maybe they have something in them? It, it's not ready to come out, but maybe there's something in them that will show up later on? Yeah, sure. Something something could uh, show up later on, you know. But again, they're they're going to get that experience eventually. Now they're on a, a special forces A team, and they're doing multiple uh, deployments and interactions, you know, with host nation and foreign soldiers and stuff. So they're going to get the experience uh, while they're on the team. The problem is if something bad happens in that first year that they're on the team where they're put in a situation where they have to make some crucial decisions uh, because they're leading a company size element of, you know, whatever Ugandan troops, but they just don't have this experience. So that that's the problem. And another thing I saw was the, the end product because I had to deal with those guys, you know, when I was at 110 as the CSM, there were, I don't have the actual numbers, but I will say there are a higher number of, you know, problems with some of those, uh, you know, those 18 X-ray guys who came in off the street and they just didn't, they didn't grow up in the regular army. Um, they just, you know, because once you get into SF, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm special, I'm better. I get to, you know, walk around with my hands in my pocket and my, my, pants on blouse or whatever, and they get this attitude like they're they're better than, you know, that private down the road in, in whichever infantry division. <clears throat> they just they have they have an attitude and a sense of entitlement that is not been earned, in my opinion. I'm sure there's some people who are gonna disagree with me and be maybe a little angry at some of the things I say, but they're my opinions. Jesse, I've said it for years, <clears throat> having gone through the Q course at a time when the 18 X-ray program was in use um, and going through the course with some of those guys, even though I wasn't going to be in their units and how that I what I saw and how that affected me. I've said for years, the reason the Army and Army soft in particular was different is because the Army breeds leaders effectively. But given the way that things are now, if you gave a piece of advice to a young soldier that does go through the x-ray program, um, knowing what you know and, and the experiences that you had, what would that be? Um, so let me just, uh, that's a good thing you just said, the army breeds leaders. So yeah, that's a perfect example. So if you are in uh, the infantry, and I know I go back to the infantry because again, that's where my experience uh, lies. So as an, as an E4 in the infantry, uh, if you are, you know, squared away and uh, you got your stuff together, you will probably be made a what's called a team leader. So each squad in the infantry, nine-man squad, has two four-man teams. So there you have leadership. Now as an E4 with a year and a half in the Army, you're kind of in charge of these three other uh, soldiers and for their health and welfare and uh, – and that's something that the army is really good at, I think, is is creating leaders. And then you, the next step is you become a squad leader. So now you're in charge of eight other soldiers. You're writing the NCOERs for the for the two E5s um, that you have in, underneath you. And so then as an E7, now you're a platoon sergeant in charge of this whole 40-man platoon. 
Okay, now jump over to the to the special forces. Okay, the only person in charge in that twelve man A team of the other NCOs is that team sergeant. He's the only one who's writing their NCOs. If you're not the team sergeant, you're not in charge of anybody else. I don't care if you're the senior Echo, the senior Bravo. You're not you're not in charge. Now you might have a little bit of oversight over that one guy, the junior Bravo, the junior Delta, but you are not uh, you're not in charge. So that's another problem that I saw with the 18 x-ray program is you get these guys in and they're, they're in the army now for 10 years, 12 years. And they, but they've been doing an okay job. So they get picked up for E8. Well, guess what happens when you become an E8 in the U S army special forces, you're most likely, unless you're screwed up, you're going to get a team. Now you're a team sergeant. And for the first time in your military career, after 12 years, you're in charge of other people. This is the first time you've ever written an NCOER. Um, so th- I, I see uh, there's problems with that. And I, and I saw it. I witnessed it. I'm not just, you know, pontificating on, on theory. I witnessed this. So, yeah. So it, I totally agree with all your points. So, but, but back to the question is, given what you know, um, and we know that there's holes in that process um, and there's problems with it. But if you're a if you're a 20 year old kid or a 22 year old kid that maybe has got a little college and comes in on the x-ray program, um, what what should or could they do um, to avoid those pitfalls, given that they're not going to get those experiences that somebody coming up in the regular army is going to get? I mean, I don't. Again, I don't agree with the program. <laughs> I don't think that, I don't agree with people taking shortcuts. Okay, now it's okay. I'm okay with people who are advancing faster than their peers in a chosen field. Yeah. But if you want to just take shortcuts, if you want to go yeah. from playing little league to playing for the whoever uh, Milwaukee Brewers, uh, you skipped a lot of steps there. Okay, and you, yeah. you didn't get those experiences that come with that, with playing high school and college and AAA ball uh, along the way. And I'm using baseball analogies like I know what the hell I'm talking about, and I know nothing about baseball. I know you do, Chris, though, um, so you can uh, make fun of me later. I, I, I well, think I get, Milwaukee like, might have been the only mistake there because I don't think that's a big leap from high school to Milwaukee. I <laughs> I don't know. I, well, I, I, could I, I get I get asked that question like guys will on social media, guys will go like young kids will go. I'm thinking about joining the military. I want to go 18 X-ray. Should I do that or should I do this or whatever? And I unequivocally, without a doubt, tell them that they should spend some time either in the regular army or if they get a ranger contract, they should spend some time in the ranger regiment first because it's going to better prepare them and it's going to develop them better. And they'll be better prepared and, and their odds of success are much higher if they do that first. Because um, yeah. I'm like you. I, I, I mean, I feel the same way. And and I was a baby when, when I did things. And I did things quickly. But I got lucky in that I experienced a bunch of different units because of things and circumstances that happened to me. And I served in all of those leadership positions in, in those periods of time that I felt like I took something away from all of those that helped me later on. Um, but yeah, yeah, I get asked that a lot. I was just curious, like, if, is there something like, Hey, you should do this 
Um, but if the answer is you shouldn't go 18 x-ray, then I kind of agree with you. I was just curious if you had a thought on it. Yeah, that's, that's my answer, Chris. I mean, uh, I, I know, uh, a little bit about, you know, your career as well. And I think that, yeah, even though you moved around, I mean, you went into uh, Ranger Battalion, you know, and you went to 82nd and, and, uh, you went third ID as well. I was or not. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of like, not only are you paying your dues, but I mean, you're, you're getting that experience. So you just can't, you can't buy, I don't care if you know what college you went to or how rich you are, you can't buy those years of experience of being in a combat arms, uh, you know, unit with, you know, a squad leader breathing down your neck and being, uh, uh, you know, expected to be responsible for your own actions and care and maintenance of not only yourself, but all of your equipment um, and looking out for your buddy to your left and your right. Yeah. And I think it's, and, and we can move on DJ, but I think no, it's no, no. like a lot of, a lot of people now, a lot of folks and i'm not i don't consider myself an old guy but i am retired a lot of guys younger than us um you know they if they come up in the x-ray program and they go to war immediately and they equate combat experience with army experience for lack of a better term and they're not the same thing for exactly the point that you made you don't learn those skills of how to lead and understand people that you get coming up in those roles. And so I think there's a distinction there between you can go to war and there's still huge gaps in your professional development, depending on how you came up through the process. Yes. hundred percent. No. And, and I, I agree with you. I, I think that's, that's all things. What I did want to circle back around to though, with this was when you're not happy with, with where you're at, you decide that you're going to get out. Um, and someone came yeah, and talked to you. Now, the reason I say that, because I say all that, and I want your answer to that, but then I want to talk about that person after we're done. Uh, so, yeah, it was actually two people. So I don't know who to give more credit to. But um, so when I went through the Q course, the 18 Charlie course, there were there were three guys in my class. And there was only like, you know, 30, 30 something of us maybe in the 18 Charlie course. Uh John, John McPhee was in my class too. Oh, oh Sheriff of Baghdad. Uh, <laughs> but I'm not going to tell any stories about him. Uh, so these three guys, they never, you know, I heard that they were at the, you know, the special mission unit or whatever, but I never really asked them any questions. They didn't divulge anything. I didn't, uh, uh, you know, I just, I didn't have many conversations with them at all. But one thing I noticed about all three of these guys was they were, they were big dudes, like over six foot, like six, two, six, three. So in my uh, small brain, I just made an an assumption that, Oh, you have to be over six foot tall to be in the unit. I'm only five eleven, So obviously I'm not eligible. It's I'm telling you, you can laugh if you want, but there's a ton of guys who, who self uh, disqualify or they, you know, they self, uh, yeah, whatever. They eliminate themselves just based off of myths or things that they have perceived or may have heard. So this is something I just came up with my on my own because these three guys were six two, six three. So I'm like, well, that's that's not even an option for me. So when I went to uh, fifth group and I was really unhappy, 
uh, with being on the team. I went and I don't remember exactly who I talked to first, whether it was the team sergeant or the warrant officer on my team. But those were the only two guys who I really uh, well, the only two that I had any respect for whatsoever. And not just because they came from uh, an infantry background and they had Ranger tabs, the only guys on the team that did. Again, not that that matters, but um, I went to these guys, and I, again, I don't remember which one first, uh, whether it was uh, Keith Gardner or uh, Don Alexander, um, but both really good guys. Don, is he was a, a warrant officer, and and you may have heard that you know Jesse's not too fond of warrant officers, and I can't confirm or deny, but I do have some good things to say about Don Alexander. And... Uh, <laughs> So I'm like, hey, I'm done. I'm not happy here. Uh, I'm going to get out of the Army. I'm going to ETS, you know, whenever. It was like uh, less than a year away. And both of those guys had been to the special mission unit selection. I didn't know that. They never told me that before. But uh, both of them told me that maybe I should give that a shot. And I looked at both of these guys, and they're shorter than me. You know, they're like 5'8", five, 5'9". I'm like, wait a minute, how did you guys go? You're not six foot tall. They're like, what, what are you talking about? So uh, I know it's kind of a funny story. I don't think I've ever told anybody that before. But uh, So this was probably late uh, 97, and it just turns out that the recruiters from the unit were going to be at Fort Campbell in December of 97. So I went to the, uh, to the briefing, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do, or at least – you know, try out for it. Um, so, so that's what I did. You know, I took, you know, their PT tests and a couple other, uh, you know, tests that they give is an IQ test or psychological e evaluation stuff. And just make sure you meet the, uh, the minimum, you know, modified flight to uh, uh, modified class two flight physical. And then I went to selection in March of 1998 Wait, so back up for a second. So when you had your psych eval, they didn't say anything to you? They just said, you're good? Uh, I mean... I have a feeling that was a confrontational uh, meeting. So, I mean, I've never, I've never in my life, and not just since, you know, the military, but I mean, even as a child, I've never been accused of being, like, completely, like, normal or mentally stable or anything like that. Um but I have had a number of psychological evaluations uh, from, you know, throughout my military career. And I mean, I guess I, I fool them, you know, I fool them every time. I just think before I answer any questions, I'm like, what would what would a normal person say? How would a normal person answer this? And then that's, <laughs> that was uh, my follow up question. Did you did you did you press pause speak when they ask questions or when you answered the questions? Or, or did oh, you yeah. just let her fly and hope for the best? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I definitely did. And, but I did have to have uh, a pretty long talk with the uh, with the shrink there at uh, the special mission unit selection because some of my answers on on one of the – because they give a, a, a whole litany of, of, you know, tests and evaluations there. So it's, not, it's not just the standard MMPI or Wonderlick. It's a, it's a whole series of – of evaluations. And I guess a couple of my answers were, uh, you know, they required some further, you know, clarification or screening. I think the what, word you're looking for is analysis. Yeah. So I remember it so clearly. <laughs> uh, one of the questions was, 
uh, what are you afraid of? And I'm like, oh, what, what are what are normal people afraid of? And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like, well, I could put I'm afraid of failure or something like that, but I didn't want to be too cliche. So I said, I said, sharks. I said, everybody's afraid of sharks, right? <laughs> so I'm all happy with myself and I write down sharks. And on that same exam, it was a few questions later. And they're like, why are you afraid of that thing that you put on question number 35, or whatever? And I'm like, oh, crap. So I can't, I can't put, you know, because. Uh, so my answer that I wrote down was, isn't everybody? Question mark. That's what that was my answer. And uh, so the shrink wanted to uh, get some clarification on that. He said by answering my question or his question with a question showed us some. Uh, You're trying to aggression. hide something. Well, it showed so aggression I, or whatever. So anyway, laughing, I got I, I, I'm laughing. But do you do you think there's some <laughs> I'm asking for the audience's sake, but do you think there is a common thread among guys that are successful um based on their psychological profile and if there's a common thread what what are they so yeah 100 percent. there's a common thread in fact uh i know for a fact because after i was in a unit for a number of years i mean i was probably there like five or six years and i went and talked to the shrink because i remember when i when i first got there uh or maybe it was even at OTC when they said, hey, um, you know, at some point you can go and sit down with the shrinks and go over some of your uh, some of your testing and stuff like that and evaluations. So I'm like, I I'm going to do it. So I had been there several years and I went in, into the shrinks office and uh, said, hey, uh, you know, just want to go over some of my results or whatever. And and there was nothing in there that surprised me. It's not like, oh, my God, I didn't know that about myself. You know, you know, that whole Juhari's window thing, um, that that corner of my window is pretty small where the things you don't know about yourself. <clears throat> but uh, so he showed all the graphs and they have like this line in the middle uh, where almost every operator um, is going to spike in a certain area like when it comes to uh, aggression and stuff like that. And then it dips down in other areas where it comes to like compassion and empathy and stuff like that. So he said most all the operators, he can he can grab anybody's results and they're going to be very similar. The only thing that uh, the main thing that's different is is we're split pretty much 50 50, whether we're introverts or extroverts. Um, but other than that, our psychological testing is pretty much the same for for all the operators so i mean i don't know if i was surprised by that but it was a interesting fact that that i did learn i will say you chris though you are one of the one of the like only normal guys you know that i you know the only normal operators that <clears throat> in the building because there's a bunch of weirdos there to be honest Do you, would you like <laughs> to elaborate i think i think i just get you so you think i'm normal <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, there's some, I mean, I'm not going to go into detail, but uh, I mean, I'm well aware that I have some idiosyncrasies, but uh, I was never, I was never the weirdest guy in the room uh, when I was at work. Yeah, there's, there's some, uh, there's some oddballs there. 
you know, but they're, yeah. but they're good at their job and, uh, you know, they, you know, they, they're what, they're what the unit's looking for, you know, and I know other people have said that the, the unit maybe isn't looking for the best guy, uh, but they're, they're looking for the right guy, uh, the guy who can do that job that is being asked of I want to go back to when you're going to get out and you talk to them about going over to special missions before we kind of move on with your career in there, because that's where you spent the majority of your time. Um, when you go over there or before you go over there and they talk to you and tell you to go, let's say no one talks to you about going over there. You decide you get out. I, I want you to think and tell me how you think your life would be different now, because you did something for so many years that put you in a different class of people, not better, not worse in a different class of people. So I want to think, I want to ask you what you think your life would be like without doing that. Uh, so I can honestly say <clears throat> that I have never, I've never thought about that. I've never thought about, cause I didn't have a plan. You know, when I was going to get out, I didn't have a plan. I was probably going to go back to Northern Wisconsin and, you know, go out and poach deer to feed my illegitimate kids or whatever. Uh, but I, I didn't have like a plan. I wasn't going to go to college and I wasn't going to start a business. Um, I was probably going to go back to, uh, logging. And, uh, so honestly, what you just asked me, had I, had I actually gotten out and not gone to, uh, the special mission unit and stayed in the army for another, you know, whatever, 15 years or more, I don't, I don't know to be, I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I don't, I don't know what I would have done. It probably wouldn't have been uh, nearly as exciting. Traveled as much as I did and been able to see and do the things I did. I, I probably would have never invaded a country, which was uh, pretty cool. Yeah, so, I, I don't know. I'm sorry I don't have a good answer for you. No, and it's not that, that there's a good or a right or a wrong answer to it. I just like to ask people, you know, if there's a different set of circumstances, what do you think you would have done? Because a lot of people, if they're going to get out, they kind of have a plan set in place. Like, I want to do this. Now, I know while you were in, you always had a plan for when you retired. I know you always talked about what you were going to do, and you did that. So that's why I asked that question. If you wouldn't have gone there, was there a plan to do something else? No, no there absolutely wasn't. Uh, but once I got to, uh, once I got to selection... In fact, it was probably my first or second day at the special uh, mission selection. I realized then that there's no place that I, no place else that I wanted to be. Uh, and I was, I was a hundred percent confident that I was going to make it through selection. Um, unless, unless I got an injury or something like that. I'm like, this is where I need to be. This is my, this is my place. You know, I, I belong here. Uh, and that's just from the interaction from the people in processing me and the cadre in their, uh, I'm like, those guys, that's, they're like, they're like me, like, like, that's where I, that's where I belong, you know? So I, I, I knew, I'm not going to say I knew, but I was pretty confident that I was going to make it through selection. I knew I wasn't going to quit. So barring an injury or just some, you know, catastrophic uh, event, or a huge, uh, couple bad navigational errors, I guess. Uh, but, but even then, even if I, uh, wouldn't have gotten selected, I would have went back. I would have went back to the next class or the class after that. Um, so there was no doubt that, 
you know, I was going to be in that unit. Well, so let's compare that with you, Chris, because we talked about you. You did twice. I failed everything once. Well, well, no, 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 no. And, and that's not what I mean by it. But but the, <laughs> the, the point I'm saying behind it is, is when you say these guys were like you, it shows when we talk about someone like Chris, because Chris went there came back and did it again. Just like you said, if I left, I would just come back again and come back again and come back again until they finally accepted me. But if we could go a little deeper, maybe dig a little deeper, how were those guys like you? And, and Chris, you can answer that too. How were, how did you know these guys are like me? You want me to go first? Or go you ahead, want to go first? <laughs> Anybody that wants to go first. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, it's, it's mindset, right? Like, like Jesse said, when he got to fifth group, and, you know, he was just surrounded by a bunch of guys that, frankly, just didn't have the drive that he did. And I'm, I'm dumbing that down because Jesse's way smarter than I am. But, <clears throat> you know, I think for the first time when you when you get there and you're a part of that environment and the professionalism and the, the expertise with which everything is delivered and executed, I think you you just naturally identify with it. Like it, w whether you're an athlete growing up and. And you always want to be a part of the the all-star team. You want to excel and outperform your peers. I think that competitive nature um, is is a common thread amongst the guys. I think you drive each other. I think there's just so many similar positive traits um, and some negative ones too. But there's so many similar positive traits that I think you just feel it inherently. And it drives you and it feeds you. I mean, you're talking about the type of people that um, – and it yeah, – I've laughed about this for years, but it's like when you're on a when you're on a PT run and you're in the regular army and it's a PT test, so everybody's on their own. Like every dude that you pass on that PT test, it's like you absorb their life force. Like that weakness leaving their body, like you take it and feed off of it, and it just makes you go faster. And I think it's just a lot of people that are wired that way, and they're all different in their own right. They're all intellectually different. Um, and they approach things differently, but there's some common themes there. Um, and one of them is drive and attitude and professionalism and wanting to excel and, and be the best. Jesse. Yeah. So that's a, that's a good point. So you'll, you'll find that a lot of the, uh, a lot of the unit operators before they came to the unit were probably, uh, the top performers in their company, in their battalion, in their brigade. Um, you know, whether they were the, the fastest at this or the best shooter or the honor grad here or whatever, you will find that common theme when you, when you look at unit operators. So I think that um, I don't want to, I mean, I, I don't want to come across as arrogant, but the, the army, you know, really wasn't like, it wasn't super hard. And, uh, you know, I was, Maybe I wasn't good at a lot of things before I came in the army, but I'm like, hey, I'm I'm pretty good at this army stuff, you know, this soldier stuff. So, uh, I didn't really feel like I had to try very hard, but I uh, was consistently like outperforming uh, people in my my platoon, my company, my battalion. Uh, but when I got to the special mission selection. I looked around and it wasn't just the cadre. I know I said that, but it was also the other students there. I'm like, these other, these other candidates, these other students, they're very similar uh, to me. 
you know, they were they were the best guys in their respective units. And now we're kind of all in the same place and we're competing for a common goal. But but it's a completely individual event, which, again, I absolutely love. And one of the things I absolutely hated about Special Forces selection was that the horrible team week. I don't know if they still do it. I know they got rid of it for a while and then brought it back. But I just I don't work. Uh, I don't always work well with others. Uh, so when I get to the special mission unit selection and they're like, hey, selection is an individual event. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just get to uh, I just get to go and do my own thing, put on a, a, a backpack and go walk through the woods, you know, at my own pace, basically. Yeah, go as fast as you can. But uh, yeah, I loved it. I wasn't I didn't have to look out for anybody else. Nobody else was going to slow me down. So, yeah, I, I knew right away from the the cadre there and from the other students that this is where I belong. Mm -hmm. This is where uh, where I was meant to be. So while you're in the unit, I want to bring up a story. Uh, Chris and I talked about it whenever he was on the show. Um, and and it was a time he was shot while in training uh, and you were in the vehicle with him now. I've heard Chris's side of it. I want to hear your side of it, what you remember about it, and kind of what your thoughts were. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, I remember it pretty clear. Uh, so I like to set up uh, <laughs> little different training scenarios, you know, for the guys. And uh, so what I was doing for this particular uh, event was I would take one one guy at a time, and I'd give him a little briefing uh, and I picked them up in a, a kind of an old beater car that we had a few laying around, you know, that we could uh, we could destroy or do whatever we wanted with them. Um, so I, you know, I picked up one guy at a time. So we'll say this time it was Chris and I gave him a briefing and made sure he had uh, his weapons loaded, primary and secondary. And uh, then I put a bag over his head and I drove him down range. Uh, and they had no idea what was coming. But the instructions I gave them was that when I take the bag off your head, you have to react to whatever's there. If there's a threat, then you need to engage it. I said, me, I'm a, uh, I'm just a driver. You know, I am not, I have no training, but I will do whatever you tell me to do. If you tell me to drive, I'll drive. If you tell me to get out, I'll get out. I will follow your instructions. Um, so we drove down range and I had, uh, you know, a couple different targets set up and I would position the vehicle, uh, you know, a different direction for each, each of the guys that I had in the car, you know, because we would run out of windows, you know. So for Chris's iteration, I had the target right outside his, uh, his passenger window. He's sitting in the front passenger seat. And so, uh, took the bag off his head and there's a, a bad guy target right there, you know, and all the windows are up in, in the car. And uh, so he, he reacted uh, appropriately and he uh, had a, a little shorty, I think he had a little 10 inch uh, shorty rifle and he kind of leaned back and put the muzzle up, you know, to the window and, you know, fired a couple shots just like he was supposed to, and then told me to drive and get out of there. So I did. And, uh, I don't know. Then I went and grabbed the next guy and he was whining about something. I don't know. I had some blood on his leg. So 
uh, took him over to the aid station. We have a little med shed right over. Well, you know, I, I need to stop call. you for just a second. Did you call him anything? Did you say anything to him before he went over to the med station? I mean, I'm sure I, I, I don't remember for sure. I probably gave him a hug. That uh, sounds like something I would do. <laughs> yeah, know, that sounds exactly you know, like you. Told him everything is going to be okay, and you know, I'll look out for his uh, family and everything. Now, I, I don't remember. Hopefully, I didn't say anything like too uh, insensitive. But again, I'm not. Uh, I'm not known for my compassion. So. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> when all this happens. Um, you go through it and, and things like this happen. Um, when Chris and I were on the show together, we talked about, you know, uh, accidents happen in training, uh, different things happen when you're comp I, I don't want to say competing, but when you're at the level that you're at and things like this happen, how do you approach it? Do you go differently into your training now? D the next guy that you take down range, do you do anything different? Do you stay the same? What, what, what changes or what stays the same? No, nope, don't train. Don't uh, don't change a thing because in so oh man, I don't want to go on a, a tangent here, but so a similar thing happened when I was in uh, special forces uh, later on after I left the unit, um, and the guys were at the range and they're shooting steel targets, and there's a you know a little bit of a ricochet, and a guy came back and he got a little tiny fragment of metal in his arm. It broke the skin, and uh, and you'd have thought uh, it was the end of the world. I mean, they had to shut down training, and the the colonel uh, is like, "Hey, no more shooting steel." Blah. And I'm like, what, "What's going on? Like, this is a, you know, we're wearing when we shoot steel, we wear eye protection, all right? Because you don't want that little piece of uh, metal coming back and hitting you in the eye. But if it hits you in the arm or the leg, um, then that's just part of training, and but the regular army, and when I say regular army, I mean the the Green Berets. They treat that like it was a a, a gunshot wound uh, and a, an accident at the range where you know you need to call in uh, medevac and shut down a range and, and notify the authorities and everything like that. And I mean, I again, I saw this happen, and it just it disgusted me because I'm like, this is just this is part of training. You know, we train realistically, and that's one thing about the unit is we we train so realistically you know as close to uh combat as you can um that when you are actually in combat it's not it's really not that different i will say that i spent 12 years at the unit and i never once fired uh a blank with a blank adapter on my weapon not one time um there was one training iteration where i had a couple of the guys get some AK-47s and we fitted those with blank adapters so we could get that realistic uh, sound, uh, you know, fired at us and stuff like that. But I personally never once fired a blank round in the unit. We do realistic training with real bullets. Uh, when we're doing force on force, obviously we do a lot of that and we're going to use our, uh, our paint rounds and simunitions, uh, which, you know, they don't make the same noise. Um, but you know, at least you, you feel it when you, when you get hit. So there is that sense of realism, but, uh, never fired a blank. 
Well, I love how in talking about training and leadership and all these things together, I love how you say that you used to tell people uh, when you're in charge, you know, you're kind of amped up and you do, you're trying to do good and everything. But when you're not in charge, you may not take it as seriously as the person in charge. So you should always take it as seriously like you are in charge. Can you go into a little bit of that philosophy? Uh, I mean, that was part of the uh, idea, I think, when I was talking about setting up the different training events and what I would do uh, periodically is I would just pick a different guy on the team mm -hmm. and say, you are in charge for today. Uh, and you can or, or I wouldn't spring it on him that fast. I'd say, hey, next week, next Friday is your day. You set up all the training, whatever you want. And you run it how you want. You're you're in charge for that day. And uh, I think that what you're getting to is, you know, guys would really uh, focus on that one day and that's their that's their big uh, crescendo. And and they would do a really good job on those days when they were in charge. But then maybe the other time they weren't as, you know, involved in the training. And and I I just want to say that that was and you might be getting that from the interview I did with Kyle. And he was uh, he had a little bit more of an issue with that. Me personally, I. I didn't have as much of an issue. I mean, uh, there were some guys um, who would, uh, you know, they w maybe didn't have quite as much initiative as other guys. But, I mean, compared to what? Compared to, you know, a workaholic who is uh, super motivated. You know, if you want to compare, even even the worst, the worst guy I ever had was, you know, would have been the best guy at, at inf any uh, infantry battalion or, or special forces battalion, you know? So, you know, you're not comparing apples to oranges. You're comparing, you know, apples to apples. So I, I hear where you're, where you're getting, but it wasn't, it wasn't a big issue for me. And so that was never an issue for you. You always had people that were ready to step up. Uh, I always had people that were ready to step up and especially if you asked them to, but there's, there's other people who maybe had more initiative where, um, they would step up because they, they just maybe saw that somebody needed to step up or whatever. And they didn't need to be asked to go and do something. They just saw that something needed to be done and would go do it. So, yeah, I mean, I had a, you know, a couple guys, one guy, he was, he was the, absolute hardest working guy in the whole squadron, you know, and, and he was on my team. So yeah, I have no complaints about any of the guys that, that were ever uh, on my team. And I'm not just saying that because Chris is there. <laughs> well, and, and, and I don't think you are. Did you ever see someone though that could step up? I know you said that everyone in, in your unit would be the best guy in any other unit, but did you ever see, stumbling blocks where people might not be ready to take that yet they were they were good and they were really good at what they did but they weren't ready to take kind of that next step so i mean i, I don't want to say uh i i did see a couple examples of surprisingly and there were some older guys too like when i when i got there there were some guys who had already been there for a number of years and uh you know they were like senior E8s, senior master sergeants, and they were not team sergeants. 
And I remember uh, like asking about that. In fact, even one of the guys, and he was an older guy, he was probably, you know, probably, I don't know, mid forties and, you know, had been an E8 probably since freaking Panama. And, uh, and he was the, the two I see the second in, in uh, charge on a team. And I'm like, I'm like, why? Hey, just curious, dude, why are you not a team sergeant? And he said, which is surprised me. He said, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to be in charge of the team. I'm happy. I'm content being the two I see. And that was, that was really confusing to me uh, that you wouldn't want to be in charge of the team. So there's, there's two guys, actually three guys that I'm thinking of right now who were in that similar situation where they were, they've been there for a long time and they just, they didn't want to be a team sergeant. They probably wouldn't have been, well, they wouldn't have been, if you don't want to be a team sergeant, then you're probably not going to be a very good team sergeant. So uh, I did see that with a, a few guys, but you know, never any of the guys uh, who work for, for me. Was there ever a time in your leadership where uh, you thought the leadership above you may have been wrong and you thought you knew better of the situation? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, there's uh, not not big deals, not, uh, you know, not life and death stuff. But <clears throat> there was two times in particular when. I'm on the ground, you know, I'm a, I'm a recce guy. I'm out physically on the ground and, uh, and I'm reporting stuff back that is not uh, maybe being taken as the ground truth or not being taken seriously. And I, you know, getting some guidance and instruction from higher to, to do something that maybe I, I didn't fully, uh, agree with. And so I'm trying to convey that back, um, you know, over the radio and stuff. But again, they weren't, they weren't big. It wasn't a, a, a really big deal. Um, so I don't want to make it seem like it's a, a bigger event than it was. <clears throat> but then once we got, you know, back to the, uh, once that operation was over, and then I was able to talk face to face, you know, with with the boss. And I'm like, Hey, Hey, you need to, you need to believe me, you know, when I'm saying whatever on the radio. And, uh, so it happened two times with two different guys, uh, officers. And, uh, and I, you know, I talked to him afterwards and it, it never happened again. So yeah, generally speaking, the, you know, you get a lot of support from, from those above you. And one thing, you know, Again, going back to the surprise of a, an operator not wanting to be a team sergeant. I mean, that is the absolute uh, that is the absolute best job that I ever had uh, in the army. I mean, and I was fortunate to have you know done it for a little bit longer than most guys get to. But I mean, that's that's who runs that organization, and even in SF too, in special forces, it's that it's that team sergeant. He's the one who's who's uh, making a lot of those decisions and, and making things happen and running that team. Uh, not not the captain on the team, you know. They're overall um, ultimately responsible, but the guys who are running the team is that team sergeant. 
But when you're calling back and you're telling people you're on the ground, you're seeing what is going on. How, how, um, disheartening is it to hear someone from the back tell you, no, you're wrong about your decision or your idea? Um, yeah, it was in one, one was a training exercise in another country, uh, where I was in the, um, anyway, and the other one was, uh, was a real world, uh, mission where I was out for a, a number of days and just, you know, not for them not to, uh, just take what I was saying as, as the, the truth, you know, this is the, this is the gospel. It was, again, it was surprising me. I'm like, why, why wouldn't somebody, you know, listen to what I'm saying and give my, and take my advice and recommendations because I'm here seeing it. Uh, so I was surprised at that, but again, it, I don't want to make it seem like it was a, uh, a bigger deal than it, than it was, but I, but it does uh, stick out, you know, 15 or 20 years later. Jesse, you were, you, as you said, and, and I'll echo it, you were, you served in a number of leadership positions in a special mission unit, um, more than most, honestly, um, particularly down at the, at the pointy end. Um, in my particular case, you know, you were tasked with coming to a team that had basically taken a bunch of casualties and, and was non-existent anymore. Did you treat that leadership position when you stepped into that any differently than you did any others that you had while you were in the building? Um, so what Chris is referring to, so I was a, a sniper a team leader for a few years. And when my time was nearing its end and I was going to have to probably move on to a different job, um, you know, unfortunately, Chris's team, I mean, yeah, the whole team got shot up. Uh, every, everybody, one guy got killed and everybody else was, uh, was uh, wounded. You know, there was one guy who was able to basically return to duty after patching up his wounds. So they kind of uh, grabbed a few guys and reconstituted this team. And they're like, hey, Jesse, you're going to be the, uh, the team starting over there. So it was a very, very you know, unfortunate thing that the team got uh, – uh, skinned up but you know it for me i mean i was really uh i was really happy to go over there because that was actually my first team that that i was on when i got the squadron so i got to go back there but uh i had i maybe treated it a little bit differently in that um i was a lot more comfortable because i had already been a, a team sergeant for you know two and a half years or more so i was I was more comfortable being in that uh, in that position. I don't know if I, you know, was maybe more cavalier or reckless. Uh, I hope I wasn't, but um, no, I was definitely. Uh, I definitely wanted to be there. You know, I would have stayed. Again, there's no there is no better job uh, based on my personal experience than being a team sergeant at that level. Um, and once we, you know, once you leave there, you're like, oh, well, you get to go and be the, you know, troops are major or whatever, but it, it's not the same. You're not, you're not, you know, you're not the one breaching that door. You're not the number one man. You're not running that close knit team, uh, and doing the things and making those decisions. Also, it's that team starting has a unbelievable amount of, uh, you know, flexibility and, 
in decision making. With all that, with the 20 years, 20 plus years of the global war on terror, speaking back to leadership, has there ever been soldiers and leaders tested more in the history of the military than they were then? Because you had to become good and effective leaders. And there was so much for so long that you had to do. Was there ever at any point another time that it was like that for leaders? Man, I, I, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, you know, you hear about the Vietnam War or even World War II where guys, you know, they would go in over to Germany for like two years. You know, they'd stay until the war was over. Yeah, well, that was, I mean, it was two years. You know, here you got guys who were literally, uh, you know, in combat for, for decades. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it takes a toll. You know, I'm sure that there's going to be, you know, stats to come out in another, you know, few decades on, the number of actual combat uh, missions and the number of, you know, months and years uh, served in combat, you know, continuously and stuff like that. But I, I mean, I can't, I mean, maybe if you go back to, you know, the, the crusades or something where guys were fighting for decades or whatever, but I mean, in our lifetimes, this was, uh, and it, it takes a toll, you know, I mean, we're seeing it now with a lot of the, uh, you know, if you just put that much stress on a guy, you know, that that allostatic load uh, of of uh, those stressors that are put on you, uh, it's it's cumulative. You know, it's not like you just go on a deployment and then come back and then it's it's all gone and then you start over at the next deployment. I mean, it, it's you know, that stuff sticks with you when you're doing back to back to back deployments, you know, for years. Um it, it can take a toll on you, you know, mentally uh, and and physically. You know, Chris can speak to that. He's got a he's got a few uh, issues. <laughs> I got all kinds of issues. No, I was just gonna say, like it's it's one. There's a toll of combat and experience and loss and all those things that go with it. But they're actually doing studies now, and there's been studies now about like the adrenal response about your body is not built. Like they're starting to see actual correlation between physiological and mental damage from the adrenal rush that you get in a fight or flight scenario and then doing that repeatedly over years because even when you're exposed to it all the time and you're used to it that still happens in your body you just manage it better than people that don't experience it all the time but that is that is having physiological and and psychological effects on human beings and they're just starting to scratch the surface of that science so that like jesse said it'll be years down the road but there's going to be a lot of things that come out of this that we just we <clears throat> frankly just didn't know if we can talk about your if if it's not too personal jesse can we talk about how it affected you mentally how it affected you physically we've talked to chris about it but i i like to hear because it's always a different answer from people now you and i had talked on the phone and you had mentioned that it might be not necessarily one thing, but, but a syndrome. And, and I can't remember the exact words that you use, but can we kind of talk about that too? Yeah. Um, actually I, I didn't know if you're going to bring it up, but I, I printed out the definition of, uh, of operator syndrome and, uh, it's surprisingly, it's not that many people know about it, but I think a lot of people, uh, you know, are, are suffering from it. And, so if I'm going to read operator syndrome uh, includes interrelated health and functional impairments, including traumatic brain injury effects, 
endocrine dysfunction, sleep disturbance, uh, chronic joint back pain, orthopedic problems, headaches, substance abuse, depression, suicide, anger, worry, rumination, stress activity or stress reactivity, marital, family, and community dysfunction. So um, there's also problems with uh, intimacy, being on guard, hypervigilant, uh, problems with cognitive impairment, vestibular and vision impairments, challenges with the transition from military to civilian life, and common existential issues. So what does that sound like? It sounds like uh, you know, PTS or PTSD, which is, in my opinion, way overdiagnosed. Because if you have those, some of those symptoms, you know, you're like, oh, you're hypervigilant or you're a little bit, you have some anger issues or whatever. People are automatic, oh, you've been to combat? Oh, you got PTSD. Um, you know, that's what the the VA tried to tell me when I when I got out. And I'm like, I don't, I don't really think I that's what I have because one of the main um symptoms of PTSD is that you don't want to go back to that environment or that situation that caused the stress. But I, I've never had an aversion to going back uh, into a combat zone. You know, I've, I've kind of looked forward to it. So I, I don't think that necessarily some of, you know, the symptoms that some of guys like me uh, have experienced are necessarily because of post-traumatic stress. It's that, it's that, uh, let me read the uh, conclusion operator syndrome. It's a natural consequence of an extraordinarily high allostatic load, the accumulation of physiological neuro and neuroendocrine responses resulting from the prolonged chronic stress and physical demands of a career with the military special operations. So that's what um, this guy named Chris Froy or Fru, I don't know how to pronounce it, but he's kind of done a lot of research on this and, and said, hey, that these special operations guys who have been doing these back-to-back -back rotations and living these uh, extremely stressful uh, times during their deployment and not, not taking anything away from the conventional army guys, uh, but if you know, generally if they go over and do a one-year deployment, they're probably sitting in the FOB for most of the time. Uh, they might go out and do some presence patrols or do a, a raid here or there, but it might be, you know, a couple times per month. So it's not um, every single night and it's not going into that, you know, high stress uh, environment and living that in, with that. So then you have that off cycle of sleep. Uh, so you're not, you know, that your recovery is your food and your sleep and, you, and you're not getting that. So, you know, like I said, that's cumulative. So yeah, we might only go over there for 100 days at a time, but we are doing, you know, 100 and, you know, at least 100, you know, high risk direct action missions in that 100 days. We're going out every single night, often several times, several different targets per night. So um, it's, you know, not again, not taking anything away from the conventional guys who are going over there as well and, and doing, you know, doing the Lord's work. But uh you know, we're doing different stuff in the special operations community, uh, especially where, uh, you know, Chris and I came from. So it adds up and it, it takes a toll. And I don't think a lot of guys realize it at the time. You know, when you're doing those back to back rotations, you don't, you know, you don't really notice it. You might, you know, uh, you might notice it when you are going through your second or third divorce or whatever, that something's a, something might be a little off. But, uh, you know, everybody that you work with, 
you know, in your team room, they're all going through the same stuff. So it's not like you can uh, necessarily talk to them about it and be like, hey, man, I'm really stressed out because of this or that, because they've been doing the exact same thing as you for years. So anyway, I just wanted to throw that out there. Jesse, when you so like on that note, so not unlike me, you did some different things at the tail end of your military career. Um, you, you left the SMU, you did some things outside of the organization. And one of those was a congressional fellowship coming out of, and at the time that you did it coming out of the role that you were filling and the things that you were doing, what was your mindset going into that congressional fellowship and why did you want to do it? Um, so that wasn't, it wasn't like some big goal of mine or something, you know, I had my set my sights on for years in advance. It was just kind of sprung on me. Uh, short notice. So I was, uh, I was nearing right at the end of my uh, troops are major time. So generally, you know, after about two years, um, they're probably going to move somebody else in and you're going to have to go and do a different job or, or whatever. So I was actually thinking about retirement. I had, I was right about 20 years and I was probably going to retire. And then uh, they, they opened up this congressional fellowship program, excuse me, to, uh, to uh, senior enlisted guys. And I know I say that I was the first uh, enlisted congressional fellow, but actually in 2009, the Sergeant Major of the Army, as you know, I'm sure 2009 was the year of the NCO, the non-commissioned officer. So the Sergeant Major of the Army said, hey, I want to get a couple NCOs on Capitol Hill to do this fellowship. So he picked two, uh, two people. In fact, I knew one of them. Uh, and gave them no train up or anything and just said, hey, go hang out in this uh, member's office. One went to a, a senator's office and the other to a congressman. So they they did. Uh, there were two people who did that prior to me. So in 2010, though, uh, Sergeant Major of the Army said, hey, I want to I want this to be a full time thing. I want to have an enlisted guy go through the entire program, which includes the the year at George Washington University and going through the whole uh, and then spending an entire year on Capitol Hill. So he decided to have uh, two E9s do that. Well, after all the uh, paperwork and everything was done in the application process, uh, there was only one selected. So so that's why I say it was the first one. I was the first enlisted guy to go through the entire program from start to finish the same that the officers had been doing, you know, for years, because it's been around a long time. And I think, I hope that they still have one or two E9s going through that program every year. I haven't really kept up on it, but I hope they're still doing it because it was a, it was a great program. I have nothing bad to say about it. You know, once in a lifetime opportunity and, uh, you know, just a really unique experience that I enjoyed. Did you, did you view that as, as, just another task. It was another mission that you needed to go accomplish or, I mean, cause I imagine it was quite a transition going from being a troop sergeant major to putting on a suit and, and walking around DC. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was definitely a transition because, you know, at first, the first, uh, you know, probably seven or eight months I was, uh, I was a college student. I was a full-time college student at George Washington university so yeah to go from like you know commando dude uh to college kid uh that was that was a transition for me 
and being in some of these classes with no kidding, you know, 20 and, you know, 25 year old, uh, kids. And, uh, yeah, that was an adjustment. And like I said, I was only enlisted dude, but there was 20, there was 22 or 23, uh, other soldiers in this, you know, they were all senior captains or junior majors. Um, and several of these had, you know, they were just, you know, they had been, this was in their career path. They had been planning for this for a couple of years. They started their application process a full year before I did, uh, where I only had like a couple of weeks to get my whole packet together. They had, you know, over a year to do it. So this was, you know, a, a huge deal for them. And uh, I don't want to say that I was, uh, I'm not a super academic guy. You know, I don't have a lot of good uh, maybe study habits and how to do proper APA formatting and research and stuff like that. In most of these other officers, they, you know, they had uh, other, they already had a one or two or more master's degrees. So they were more familiar in that setting. So it was, it was definitely foreign to me to be in that uh, college setting. Um, but I mean, I, I did, I did fine. You know, I, you know, nobody, pointed out that I was the uh, knuckle dragon uh, enlisted guy. Uh, I think I, I blended in okay with the, uh, with the Ruperts, with the officers. But once we got, once we got on the Hill, we all went to our separate offices. You know, they put uh, half of us on the house and half in the Senate. And uh, so I didn't have a lot of interaction with anybody else. So, you know, in there I wore a suit and tie every day. I think the, I was on the Hill for a full year from January 3rd of 2011, all the way up until December 31st. Um, so that full year. And I think I wore a uniform twice, maybe three times during that time. Um, and we would have to, we had had a, an office at the Pentagon. We would go over there and meet, you know, for a, a meeting or whatever, you know, every other month or something like that. But otherwise I was, uh, I was in the legislative branch. I wasn't, uh, you know, I was still getting paid by the executive branch, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, my loyalties lied with that Senator's office. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was a great experience. So let me ask you from 2010 to 2013 of your career, you spend time with senators, congressional, uh, you, you are around a different kind of, like we just said, a different kind of person that you've been in your whole career. And you're seeing a different side of how decisions are made and maybe passed down to the military or passed down to the public in general. Did you change your thoughts on politicians and the kind of the movement of democracy while you were doing that? Or were you pretty much dead on what you thought about how things were handled no it was uh it was very eye-opening um to see the process exactly of you know like how how bills become laws and being involved into that uh at that level um and it's not it doesn't work exactly the way we learned in, in schoolhouse rock you know how a bill becomes a law there's a lot of behind the doors uh, meetings and discussions, you know, because if you watch on C-SPAN or, you know, anytime you have whatever Democrat and Republican senator and they're like saying bad things about each other. Well, then after that, they'll go and have a private meeting in the cloakroom or whatever. And 
and they'll work it out and they have to do that. Otherwise, you know, nothing would, nothing would get passed. But the biggest surprise or my biggest opinions probably changed with the military itself. Uh, and I saw a different side to the military that was not, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really a good side. I, you know, a lot of, some of my opinions changed about the higher levels of the military and, and how they do business. Um, cause I would, I would take meetings with, uh, you know, general officers on a regular basis. I would go over and meet at the Pentagon. And again, I didn't, and it was up to me if I wanted to convey to them that I was an enlisted guy in the army because other, as far as I knew, I was a congressional staffer. Um, you know, and, and, and I was, I was representing the office of the Senate, you know, the senior Senator from Texas. So I get to see, I don't want to say, um, I got to see some inner workings of some decision-making for some, you know, high level, like super high level, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars programs. You know, when you're talking about like, you know, the B-1 bomber and the joint strike fighter and stuff like that. And some of the, uh, I'm not going to say the deception, but there was some, some facts and truths that were maybe omitted from some of the conversations from some of the senior level military people. And what I mean by that is if you have a three-star general who's in charge of this program, uh, in the military, he's there for two years at the most. Uh, and this is a, you know, several billion dollar program. So he's going to say what he can or what he needs to, to get money, uh, funding, uh, appropriated to this specific defense budget for this, for this program, knowing full well that it's going to take 10 or 15 years or longer, uh, for this to be developed and built so he can he can say whatever he wants you know and I saw that with the with the b1 bomber when those were um, when that program was sold to Congress however many decades ago now they said hey this b1 bomber is going to last for until 2035 and it's going to be good for 25,000 flight hours or, or whatever numbers I, I don't know I don't want somebody to correct me and say the wrong but they sold the program to Congress that it was going to be this good for this long. And, uh, and it's not, you know, the B ones are hitting their, their life expectancy because of so many flight hours that they had them doing like in Afghanistan and doing patterns that they weren't designed to do. You know, that's a long range strategic bomber. Uh, but if you're in Afghanistan flying racetracks, flying circles around, you know, for 12 hours at a time, then the airframe wasn't designed to do that. So it's going to shorten the lifespan and stuff like that. So I just, I saw a different side of the military that I wasn't really, you know, proud of, um, I guess. And I really got kind of a bad taste for some of the, uh, oh man, people are going to hate me for this, but some of the veteran service organizations um, that would come in with their meetings, you know, whether it's the the blue water vets or the brown water vets or the, you know, VFW or whatever organization. And it's a lot of, 
what I what I saw was a lot of, hey, I'm a veteran and I served my country and now I deserve this. I'm entitled to this. You you owe me this. And I'm thinking, we don't owe you shit, man. You you, you didn't join you didn't join the entitlement, right? You joined the service. It's in the name to serve. So uh, I don't I don't feel like I don't know. People are going to probably hate me for that, but I it just bothers me when vets come across as they deserve you know this or that or they have this sense of an entitlement. Um, now that I'm not saying I'm not going to take my 10% military discount at at Home Depot if they offer it. But I'm not going to demand my military discount and get upset if I don't get seated in first class on the, you know, American Airlines or whatever, because I don't I don't feel like I'm entitled to that. You know, me and Uncle Sam, uh, in my opinion, we're you know, we're about even, you know, I mean, I don't really owe him anything, but he doesn't he doesn't. Really don't, don't you think, though, that that has gotten worse with being at war for 20 years? Uh, because the number think, is uh, just so astronomically bigger than it's ever been before. What number? The number of veterans, the number of people that have served is just so much larger than it's ever been before because this has gone on for so long. And, 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 and the scary thing is at some point, and Jesse, you probably have an opinion on this. At some point there's going to be a reckoning, right? Like, so, retirement and disability compensation for veterans is the single largest expense of the U S federal government. And it has been for a long time. And those numbers have grown exponentially in the last two decades because we've been at war for so long and we've generated so many veterans and so many more veterans with disability and, and everyone has gotten so, uh, it's like Jesse said earlier, things have been overdiagnosed, Um, and they certainly have, um, there's going to be a reckoning at some point where decisions are going to have to be made to figure out how to reduce that number. And a lot of feelings are going to get hurt and a lot of people are going to get angry because we've created this sort of culture of entitlement, (laughs) even amongst service members. Um, and some of those are going to lose some of those benefits at some point because we physically cannot sustain it. And I'm just curious to see what Jesse thinks about that. So, yeah, I think, uh, I think we get, so again, man, people are going to hate me, but I think we get, uh, I think we get too many benefits too early. Meaning, uh, in one of the things I tried to do when I was on the Hill and I proposed to the Senator, which, uh, wasn't able to sell off was to increase the uh, length uh, of service for retirement. I was going to change it to 25 years. So I did some you know history on that. And it used to be even back right after the Civil War, there was a time uh, even then you had to do 30 years. And there was a short period of time uh, where you had to do 40 years of service before you were eligible for retirement. And then they backed it way down, uh, I think, in the 30s back down to 20 years. But even then, you know, the life expectancy was like 52 years old. Um, so now that life expectancy is 77 point something in, in the US. So a guy can, you know, get out of high school, join the military for 20 years, retire at 37, 38 years old, and get, you know, 50% of his base pay. And and now he still has another 35, 45 years uh, to live where he's gonna collect that 
that and and he's a combat vet of of 20 years talking about this yep. generation so, so he's probably on a high scale of disability if he's at 100 percent, he's making as much if not more than he was on active duty so you're paying yep. a guy from the time he's 18 years old basically full active duty salary with benefits for the rest of his life which is longer than it's ever been in u.s history like that's why yeah. i say like there is going to be a point where it's unsustainable yep you're yep you're exactly right and uh i don't you know i don't know when that's going to be i don't have the numbers i like to think that you know one of the things i saw on the hill though is um nobody wants to uh say no to the veterans so yeah. even when we were doing the, uh, you know, when they had to have the continuing resolution because, you know, the budget was going to shut down immediately, uh, there's a, a bill passed that even if the even if the government shuts down and even if uh, we don't pass the, the budget, the, the military is still going to get paid. Um, so they're really quick to to take care of the military. Um, so, you know, I guess. I guess that's good. So you do have real concerns, I think, Chris, but I don't think that, you know, it's going it, to, it probably won't come to a head for the, you know, several, several decades. And they're going to find that. a way to fix it. Yeah, just like they will with Social Security. I mean, that's a, that's a bad system uh, as well. And it's not sustainable and they're going to have to do something to fix it just like they're going to have to do with the military pension and the va disability uh payments because it's not sustainable at this rate so i don't I have the answer on how to fix it what's that? i think i think i think extension of service to, to earn retirement is a good idea personally i mean if you'd have told me that no now you have to do 25 years i would have done 25 years and i think a lot of guys are like that but I made a decision yeah. at 19 years that, uh, okay, I've done these things in my career. I'm at a point where now is the best time for me and my family to transition out of the service. I'm going to retire at 20 years. And I did. I retired at 20 years and six days or whatever because it made the most yeah. sense for me at that point. But if you just said, you got to do 25 to earn your retirement, I'd have done 25. Right. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I, I tried. I tried to. That, yeah, that was back in 2011. I tried to get the uh, senator to introduce, uh, uh, to repeal the combat exclusion policy for females too. And I thought, hey, she's a, a trailblazer. She's a she's a woman, right? She, she's going to support this. And she and she didn't. She's like, uh, I don't really know if I am ready because she thought it would lead to females being drafted. And then so she, even though she's a you know pretty powerful woman, she's still kind of old fashioned in that, that aspect. But you know, fortunately, in 2015, it was uh, it was repealed anyway. So, well, Chris, uh, I'm glad you brought that up, Jesse, because I, I think we want to go down this trail for a minute and uh, we want to talk about women in combat, your thoughts on it, your ideas. And uh, Chris, I want you to add on to this because this was, you know, I think this was important to ask. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, Jesse and I have, have both served with women throughout our careers, in spite of the fact that we both served in a special mission unit. Um, and and yeah, Jesse Jesse has a, a a diverse career path. He's done a lot of things. He's been in a lot of places. He's done a lot of things that that most people don't expect from an SMU operator. So um, that's that was a hot button topic 
you know, 18 months ago, two years ago, it still kind of hangs on. They've made a lot of strides in terms of allowing women to um, go through training that they previously were not allowed to do um, and serve in roles that they were previously not allowed to do. So I, I was curious um, as to get Jesse's thoughts. He and I have talked about it, but it's been years ago. And I know we both have our own opinion and he's probably better at explaining it than I am. So I just wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, so, yeah, really briefly, I think that the uh, the combat exclusion policy for females that was in place forever up until, you know, 2015, that was probably the the last form of open, you know, blatant discrimination that we saw in our military. You know, they you know, back in the you know, we used to have segregated units, but, you know, they did away with that in 1948. And uh, so now you couldn't imagine if the military had had units segregated by different uh, races. But we actually did that back then, you know, when they first allowed women to go to uh, to West Point in, I think, 1976 and then Airborne School around the same time, maybe 78, 79, you know, but before then they're like, surely a woman can't go to West Point. A woman can't jump out of airplanes, you know. For whatever reason and then all through you know the 80s and 90s and the 2010s you know they were saying that women you cannot even apply to go to special forces you cannot even attempt to try out for ranger school solely because of your gender so they were automatically discriminating you know an entire segment you know 15 16 percent of our of our army saying you can't even try out and i just uh i always thought that was that was wrong um now i'm i'm definitely not in favor of changing the standards uh or lowering standards you know to make quotas or to make sure that a certain number of uh females make it through you know and what i've said many times is let let the women try out. Let anybody try out. Don't disqualify somebody because they're uh, black or because even because they're gay and surely don't do it because they're a woman. Okay. Let them try out just like you do everybody else. And if they're going to fail, then let them fail. But if they're going to pass, if they're going to succeed, then let them succeed. You know, just don't uh, disqualify them. And, you know, I don't want to go into a lot of, I know people probably have a thousand questions about uh, females in special operations. And uh, they've, they've been there for a lot longer than people think. Um, but it's, you know, it's still a little bit of a kind of a sensitive topic. So I probably won't go into a lot of detail in that. But I will say that, um, you know, not all women, just like not all men perform well in, in the military or in special operations, but there are some. There are, there are some uh, females who perform exceptionally well. Uh, they, um, you just have to trust me when I say you would be uh, you would be surprised. You would even be impressed at some of the things that uh, that I've I've personally witnessed uh, females accomplish. Yeah, I think people get hung up on on physical versus non-physical things. Um, I think you and I feel the same way about the discriminatory efforts that that were underway 
um, and, and about, but at the same time about changing standards. Um, like I've told people for years, I was not a big guy, Jesse, you know this. And when I went through, when I went through the operator training course, I had a really big guy. Um, I, Jimbo was on my, on my Jim, team Jim. in school and, and Jim was a big man and I was not a big man. And Jim was also an 18 Delta and I had another 18 Delta on my team. So anytime during training that they assessed a casualty on target that we had to assess, treat, and then evac, they always made it Jim and they always made me carry him off target as the littlest guy on the team. <laughs> and Jim and Kit weighed like 320 pounds. And I would never have an issue with anyone that's capable of doing that. And that is a real world scenario that can and will and does happen. If somebody can complete that task because it's necessary, so be it. I don't, I don't care who they are or where they came from or what their gender is or whatever. Absolutely, they can do that. Now, I'll caveat that with, because that sounds like I'm saying they shouldn't do that. I'm not saying that. I'll caveat that with, you have to understand people's strengths and weaknesses, regardless of gender or, or anything else. There are things that men, my, my personal belief, this is just Chris, there are things that men and women bring to the table. I, I live this in my daily life with my wife. My wife has strengths and I have strengths and I have weaknesses. And well, she doesn't really have any weaknesses, but you get the point. Like we complement each other as a couple. We complement each other as teammates. It's no different in a combat scenario. So if you have someone that can bring skills to the table that other members of the team can't, why would you not want to figure out a way to incorporate them into that effort? And so I, I hope that makes sense, but I, Jesse, I know you know what I mean. And I think people just, they try to lump it into categories and that's a mistake. Yeah, there's definitely uh, I mean, you can speak in general terms, like generally speaking, a dude is probably going to be better at kicking in the doors and being an aggressive number one man uh, and using the appropriate amount of uh, violence of action on target. Generally speaking, a dude is going to be better at that. Okay, he's got more testosterone in his veins. He's got, uh, you know, his his heart is two thirds the size of a woman's or whatever. He's got more muscle. He's going to be better. Generally speaking, that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, some women who can be pretty good at that. And then also, generally speaking, there there are certain tasks that women uh, are are better at. You know, they're uh, you know they're better intel analysts. That's not saying that there's not some really good dudes that are intel analysts, but generally speaking, uh, I think women are more detail oriented and they're better at certain tasks uh, dealing with uh, intelligence analysis and collection and gathering. I think that there's some uh, street craft or uh, trade craft skills and uh, some low visibility operations, close target reconnaissance, urban reconnaissance. There's some of those things that I think generally speaking, women tend to perform better at those uh, in the same environment. Again, not saying that uh, there's not some dudes that can do a really good job at that, but so there, there's a there's a place, you know, will there ever be a, a, a female uh, uh, operator on an assault team? You know, I, I hope so. Um, I, I think there will be. And uh, we've already got them you know, in, in SF and special forces, there's been three now who have made it through the Q course. And I think another one just made it through selection. She's getting ready to start. 
And I'm telling you, they did not. I know I've got some insider uh, trading on that, and they did not lower the standards. Those females are complete uh, studs that made it through the Special Forces uh, Assessment Selection and Qualification course. And me personally, if I was on an ODA, if I was a team sergeant, I would want one of those females on my team. And uh, I tried to share that with the guys that, when I was at 110, and they just, they were, a lot of guys were against it. And I, I think it comes from either, it's either insecurity or, uh, or just ignorance because they're like, uh, you know, they grew up with a sister who was maybe very feminine or, or dainty or whatever. But those first few females coming out of the Q course, they're going to, uh, like I said, I would want them on my team. They're going to be they're going to be smarter than most of the guys on the team. They're going to be way more resourceful. They're going to have stamina. They're they're going to not quit. And and not quitting uh, is more important than uh, you know just maybe physical strength. In my I opinion. don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you. You you said that you hope that it happens, and and Chris, you can answer this too. Will it ever? Do you think that it will ever be widely accepted? Um, <laughs> that's tough. N- n- not in our lifetime. I don't think it will be. Um, because I think my personal opinion is I think the approach is wrong. Um, I think it's, and I don't want to get political either, but I think there's a lot of things where, and in particular service members, like we're the most diverse group of people. We're probably some of them. I've said this before. I think I said it to you, DJ service members. A a lot of us are some of the most moderate people you'll ever meet in your life. Um, and it's, it's based on being well-traveled and, and experiencing things all over the world and, and just viewing the world a little differently. Um, but I think the forcible nature with which things have been accomplished in the last, you know, 10, 15 years where they're shoving things down people's throat versus taking a different approach um, and going, okay, we're like to Jesse's point, we're not going to lower the standards, but, but why wouldn't we open this up to everyone and all those skill sets? I think because they're forcing it down people's throats, that generates resistance. Um, and because of that resistance, it's it's going to take a long time. Jesse. Uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be accepted. I mean, that'd be like um, asking, hey, do you think it's accepted? Do you think uh, do you think a black soldier can drive a tank or fly an airplane or command troops in combat? I mean, that's a ridiculous question. Of course it can. But back in 1947, it was unheard of. Right. Um, and same with, you know, women going to West Point or going to airborne school or, or allowing homosexuals in the military, you know, they've been allowed now for 10, 11 years or whatever. And, uh, it's not completely accepted probably by everybody, but it is becoming more, uh, more accepted, you know, it's more, uh, normal. So, um, so right now I'm, uh, working for a guy, Chris knows, uh, named Matt. And uh, he, he's got a, he was just telling me he's got a daughter in the military. She's a lieutenant and she is a, uh, a platoon leader in an infantry platoon. Uh, and he's like, yeah, it's, it's completely normal. Like it's, it's a thing now. There's female infantry uh, officers all over the place. Uh, I just met two females that graduated ranger school 
um, earlier this year. And it's it's becoming more normal. So it's still it's still pretty new, right? I mean, they've only allowed females uh, to go to ranger school and the Q course and dive school. And I think they can go to, you know, buds. I don't know if any have uh, went to, to Navy buds yet or anything, but it's it's going to become uh, more normal. So, you know, 1976, they allowed females in West Point and that what you know, that was less than 50 years ago. So it's completely normal. Now, if you told some younger kid that there was a time when females weren't allowed there, they would be, uh, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't comprehend that. So, yeah, I think it will be uh, more accepted and, and more normal. And people realize that, hey, you know, yeah, it's not for everybody, you know, out of the, you know, I think the army is about 16% female and only a small percentage of those are, are have the desire or the drive to go into a combat arms MOS to go into special forces or even the infantry. Um, a small percentage have that desire and an even smaller percentage will, will make it through a, a ranger school or, or a special forces training, you know, but, but some will, and it's gonna, it's gonna be more accepted. Well, I want to end the talk about your military career with a quote that I found from a small newspaper. I don't, I don't know where it was exactly, but you said, if the boy you were would be proud of the man you are, then you're successful. Looking back yeah, on your um, whole career. What's that? That's pretty obscure. Uh, yeah. I, I gave a, we do our research here. I gave a Veterans Day speech at a small town uh, high school in 2018. It wasn't even my high school. It was in the next county. But one of my classmates is like a, a teacher there. And I and the superintendent is a was a National Guard uh, CSM. So they asked me to come and speak. And uh, yeah, that's just kind of uh, how I how I finished up the speech, because a lot of people, if you ask them, what's the opposite of success, people will automatically say failure. And I, and I disagree in that, um, I've, I've failed, you know, many times in my military career, maybe not quite as many as Chris, who said he's <laughs> had to do every school twice. But again, Chris has failed many times. I failed many times, but does that mean that we're not successful? Uh, no, not at all. So, but the difference is we didn't quit. So I would say the opposite, uh, of success is, is quitting. So if you, if you fail at something and then you give up and you quit and you don't try again, then, uh, you know, then that's a pretty bad thing. But as long as you don't quit and you keep, keep at it and keep trying, then you will be successful. So, you know, I think that, you know, when I said that, it just sums it up good. If you think back to when you were eight, 10, 12 years old, and if you think about, you know, who you would be proud of as an adult or the adults, uh, adults around you, you know, so if the boy you were would be proud of the man that you are now, then, then that's it. Then you, then you're successful. It doesn't matter how much money you have or the job you have or, or a trophy wife or whatever else. It's if that the younger you would be proud of the, the current you, then, then that's, then that's success. So let me pose the question to you then. Is that you? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, yeah, ten-year-old me was, uh, uh, yeah, 
I didn't, I didn't think I would be anywhere near, you know, as successful again. I mean, I was, uh, not, you know, I didn't have the, the best upbringing. Um, probably, like I said, maybe a kind of a dysfunctional, uh, uh, up, upbringing, but, um, I, you know, probably not a lot of potential where I was. And, you know, I didn't have my sights set very high. You know, I thought, hey, if I can get a full-time job making, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, uh, that's probably, you know, that's probably good enough, you know. But I mean, here I am, and I, I mean, and because of the army, I give a hundred percent of the credit to the to the army, you know, for, I mean, that was the, the best decision that that I ever made. Um, the things that I've been able to see. And, and do and experience, you know, you just can't, money can't buy that. I mean, I've, you know, in just the travel alone, I mean, I've been to all, I was at all 50 states by the time I turned 40, probably been to uh, over 70 countries, you know, and I'm just a, you know, a kid from Wisconsin. I mean, uh, the biggest trip we made was over to, to Minneapolis, you know, so uh, yeah, I owe, I owe it all to the military. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the boy I was would be uh, proud of the man I am. I always say to people like, uh, and I made a, a ton of mistakes in my life um, or, or poor decisions or whatever, good, bad. Um, I've always said I wouldn't change any of those because all of those helped make me into the person that I am today. And they created the experiences that I went through. And I think they were all instrumental in getting me to the point where I am right now. Is there anything in your military career um, that you would change? No, uh, absolutely not. So I don't know if this is part of my, uh, so I have, I have no regrets. I have, I have none. I don't know if that makes me a, uh, a functional sociopath as I, as I was called the other day, but, uh, yeah, there's, I, I don't regret anything. Now, if I had it to do over again, there might be a couple little things I may have done differently, but that's more like in my personal life with, you know, some of my, my marriages or whatever, but even those, I, I don't regret them. Like, like that's, that's who made me who I am uh, based on those experiences. Those were character, character developments. Now, you know, one of the failures I, uh, I recycled the, the desert phase back when I had desert phase of ranger school. And that was, that was like a horrible, uh, experience for me. You know, that was a big failure. Um, you know, would I, if I had to do over again, what I want to, uh, I'm not saying I would want to fail that again, but that made, that had an impact on me. And, you know, it was, it was character building and that, that experience of going through that twice, um, you know, had some effect on me. And so, yeah, I don't, I have no regrets. Um, like, like I, I can't think of a, a single regret that I have in my military career. Some things, you know, I didn't enjoy at some uh, points while I was doing it. I didn't enjoy base training. I didn't enjoy ranger school, but I would, I don't regret it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. Uh, I wouldn't change anything. Well, let's talk about what you're doing now. I want to talk about your YouTube channel because you're getting very famous on there. Uh, tier one <laughs> trapper. And uh, I want to um, talk about you being in politics now and, and can we look for you running in the next race and 
What is it that you're kind of culminating all of these years of service to your country? You've kind of turned it over here, done service to people with your YouTube channel by showing people what you're doing, how you do it. And then with your politics, you're really trying to make where you're living a better place to live for everybody there. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's, so that's quite a bit. Um, so after, so, all right, I'll try to get through. So after retirement, I had a plan. I was pretty much done with the army. It wasn't fun anymore. I'd done everything I want to do. So I'm like, I'm going to get out. I'm going to open my, uh, my antique store. I had a real like passion, uh, for, for buying and selling antiques and vintage stuff or, or anything, you know, it, it gave me pleasure to buy something for a dollar and then sell it for $2. I, I really enjoyed that. So I, I did that. I opened up a store, um, uh, did that for a couple years and, uh, and then my, uh, my current wife, she asked me to, um, to go start doing some, some contracting work because she was an independent contractor. She's a reservist, but she was also doing a lot of contract work. So she was gone a lot, like, you know, six, eight, nine months out of the year. And we had, you know, two young boys. So she didn't want to be away from the boys that much. And, uh, they didn't want her gone that much. So she's like, Hey, we're going to flip these roles. I'm going to stay home more. And so you need to uh, go work more because your, uh, your antique store isn't bringing in, uh, quite enough money to live the lifestyle I want. So you need to go do some contract work. So I'm like, okay. So I closed the store and I started doing contract work and I've been doing that now since 2018, uh, quite a bit, you know, working for, in fact, that's what I'm doing right here, uh, in this undisclosed location in a, uh, major metropolitan city in uh, the Eastern time zone, uh, working for, uh, endurance group. What's that? I said, it looks like the Eastern block. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, working for endurance group right now. And I do quite a bit of work for these guys. Great, great company. Uh, Matt's the, uh, the owner used to work with him and, you know, I work for probably three or four other, uh, contract companies and then do some direct hire work occasionally for, uh, DOD and, uh, other government agencies. So that's what, uh, what I do, you know, to, to pay the bills. Um, but I do, I mean, I do enjoy it. It gives me an opportunity to, to give back, you know, to the community, even though I'm not, you know, doing any real operational stuff, i feel like I'm doing things to prepare, uh, our current and future war fighters to, to do great things. Um, I what I did spend about a half a year though, as a shooting instructor. And I did not like that. I just, I have no desire to, uh, to really teach any, uh, shooting or, or CQB stuff. Uh, I do more of the, what I do enjoy is more of the special activities type stuff. Uh, some of the, the trade craft and, signature reduction, surveillance and surveillance detection, post target reconnaissance type stuff, you know, that, uh, teaching that, uh, teaching, and then also observing mentoring and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, that's what I'm doing here now for, uh, endurance group. And, uh, so the, uh, the, the shooting instructor thing, uh, yeah, that's when I, I think that that's what I blame for kind of my, uh, when I, when I hit a wall, I kind of, 
hit a low point, uh, went, went to kind of a dark place in, in 2019. And uh, just, you know, I'm like, what what am I doing? Like, what, where am I going in, with my life? Like, I'm just, I don't enjoy this work. I was driving to my shooting job in another state and I just, I'm like this, uh, I'm miserable. And uh, so I've been, uh, you know, recovering now from that for the past uh, couple of years and trying to trying to find my my purpose you know and I realize um, and I thought there was something really wrong with me but then I actually talked to a shrink and uh, did a little research online and found out that that's completely normal it's a it's a retirement thing the uh, depression that, that some people go through uh, you know, the first one to three years after retirement, they call like the honeymoon phase and everything's fine. But after that, you know, you, especially if you were in a very rewarding or fulfilling job, uh, like I was, it gave me a great deal of, of purpose. You know, I had a passion for it and it gave me purpose, you know, as, uh, you know, part of the national mission force. Um, so after a couple of years of being retired, I, I was kind of searching for that, that purpose, you know, and uh, so I'm doing a little, little better now, you know, so still looking. So if anybody out there, well, I'm sure you got what a couple dozen uh, viewers, right? So if anybody has some idea for, right. uh, for, for Jesse to find some uh, purpose, something also, you know, the, but I have to be passionate about it now. So I know I've, I know what the, uh, I know what the recipe is, you know, for that for that happiness, but I just don't have the exact ingredients yet. So still working on that. But uh, yeah, so politics, um, I have this degree in legislative affairs. It's just like sitting on the shelf, right? Not doing any good. So I'm like, hey, maybe I'll dabble in a little bit of small town politics. And like I said before, you know, it's those incremental steps. You don't want to go straight from being a, a antique store owner to a U.S. Senator, right? So I'm like, I'm going to start at the lowest possible uh, elected position, which uh, is school board. So I ran, there was an opening on our, on our school board and uh, I ran for it and I, I lost. And again, no regrets. I'm perfectly okay with that. It was a good experience. Um, I learned, uh, I learned a little bit and uh, learned a lot about my community, which is, uh, I don't want to say incestuous, but if you if you didn't grow up there, then uh, then you're an outsider, right? You're a tourist. So I didn't grow up right where I'm living now. I grew up about an hour and a half south, so I had no name recognition. And but now you know I've been there a few more years. Uh, I had the business. I bought a house. I got kids in school. So uh, there's a few more people that are getting to know me. So when a position opened up as a county board supervisor for my district, I got back on the ballot then and, you know, ran a, an effective campaign, you know, and sent out the mailers and put the, the right ads in the paper and stuff like that. And, uh, and I won. And that was in 20, 2020. So I just got reelected to my second term this past April. And, uh, and now I'm uh, I'm actually the chair of two committees, the zoning committee and the uh, land, forest, water resources committee, and I, I really enjoy it. Um, it's uh, I'm able to make decisions, you know, that affect 
the whole county, which it's a big county size wise. It's the fifth largest in the state of Wisconsin, but population wise, we've only got about 18,000 people in the county. But, uh, yeah, I really, uh, I really enjoy that. Um, and you know, maybe if the, uh, my state representative, uh, position opens up, which we call assemblyman in Wisconsin, but, uh, the guy we got there now, uh, Jimmy boy, he's, uh, he's pretty popular. So I wouldn't, wouldn't want to run against him. Um, but he's, he's getting older, you know, so maybe, uh, he, he is running this year. He's getting primaried actually on, on August 9th. So we'll see if he wins the primary. I think he will, but I'm going to start maybe looking at 2024 and see if, uh, got some, some possible options there for the next step. You know, we'll see. Jesse, you're, you're, you, you were always a great leader. Uh, and, and, you uh, you've always had an impact on things that you do and things that you're a part of. And I think you'd be good at it. Um, and I know that you absolutely take it seriously and give it your all. Are you are you going to continue down that path? Are you going to keep moving into positions of greater responsibility on the political side? Uh, the only thing I would say, yes, the only thing that would keep me from not doing that is, like I said earlier on, is um i've learned that probably the single and this might sound horrible make me sound like a bad father parent human but i think the most important thing for me is 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 freedom right so not just my own personal freedom but i mean freedom in the in the bigger sense so i don't want to work a full-time job i don't want to uh start my own like uh consulting company where i'm obligated with those responsibilities abilities to to those commitments uh you know four or five days a week um not that i'm avoiding responsibility but i've learned that i really enjoy my own freedom uh to be able to take off it like i'm going to you know idaho for probably a full month this fall this fall and i i wouldn't i might not be able to do that if i was uh you know a full-time state assemblyman uh so, yeah, I mean, I probably will continue to seek positions of higher responsibility as long as it doesn't interfere too much with my own personal freedom. As long as you can keep that work-life balance. Yeah, yeah. And that's why, you know, this independent contractor, I mean, I work, I work when I want and I don't work when I don't want to. So uh, it fits me. Uh, it suits me pretty well. Well, where can people find you? Uh, so got that little logo there. It says Jingo. I just, I just started an LLC just like last week and, uh, just the nascent company, um, you know, might look at starting, uh, I don't know, some e-commerce stuff, maybe some t-shirts to some other things. So, uh, you can email me, uh, at jesse at jingonow.com or, uh, you can find me on, uh, Instagram, uh, you know, got a few followers there. Uh, friendly, but not your friend is my handle on Instagram with an underscore between each word. There's another guy that just started an account called friendly, but not your friend. Uh, so I don't know if he's trying to do some, I don't know what, what he's up to, but I'm keeping an eye on him. Uh, so you can find me there. I do have that YouTube channel, which I don't know if it's quite as popular as you made it out the sound. I think I've got like 300 uh, subscribers now, but yeah, that's a tier one trapper. 
And uh, I think I need to branch out there because all of my videos are about beaver trapping. So I need to expand and uh, I'll try to get some photos of or videos of my my elk hunt and some trapping out west maybe uh, this fall. But uh, yeah, that's that's where people can uh, reach me. I, I've got a LinkedIn account too, uh, Jesse Betcher. But there's you know there's two or three other Jesse Betchers in North America, so I'm keeping my eye on those guys too. Chris, is there anything you want to promote before we wrap this up? No, I don't. I'm just I'm happy to be here, Jesse. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. I miss your brother. I love you, uh, and I'm so glad that you did this, DJ. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So, guys, uh, you can find Jesse in a couple different places. Instagram, friendly but not your friend. I know it doesn't sound like that guy at all, but that's where you can find him. It's got great pictures, great stories there. Check him out. Help him with his new company, Jingo. Uh, there'll be stuff up, I think you said, Jesse, within a couple days, right, where there'll be some shirts and stuff ready? Um, maybe not because I'm, you know, I'm traveling right now, so... <clears throat> Uh, it, it might actually be a few weeks before I okay. get some products up on there, but you know, I, I'm not really, uh, technically savvy. Uh, so I'm trying to do all this website and stuff by myself in a remote location. So, uh, anyway, I'm just trying something new. So, uh, give the website one more time. Uh, it's jingonow.com. Okay. Well, guys, you know, if you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. You get to take a look at Jesse. Now, remember, go to that one-stop shop, dtdpodcast.net. That's the audio of the show. That's the video of the show. Jesse will have his own page with pictures from his career, pictures from him now, and everywhere that you can find him with click-on links that will take you directly to him. Also, don't forget, go check out our sponsor at Police Coffee, policecoffee.com. It's an officer-owned business dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee is some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause and the most important, giving back to our community. 50% of our profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. And when you go to policecoffee.com and you put in your order, make sure you put in DJK10 for a 10% discount. That's going to be the conversation this week. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you to my co-host, Chris. Guys, check us out next week. We'll have another show out there for you. That's Jesse. That's Chris. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys later. See you.